0: This is Radiance tape number, J.D. 61, recorded on February 17, 1974. A message by Jim Durkin, entitled, Jesus Was a Man. I want you just to listen to me now. I want to take maybe a half hour to just lay something down, especially to the ones that are newer in the Lord. Although this will apply to the ones that are have walked with the Lord maybe longer time than that by far. Some of you may have walked with the Lord 40, 50 years. And my words will apply to you just as effectively and powerfully as it will to the newest babe. But it's especially directed to the new ones who might not have heard this concept. In our minds, we picture the Lord Jesus Christ as perfect from his birth. And in one sense... That's true. He was born a perfect baby. There was no special beauty in him, the Bible says, that when we see him, we should desire him. There was no glow sometimes in our pictures of the manger scene, which of course is totally distorted. I can tell you that the three wise men were not at the manger, they didn't arrive until about two years later, no way they could have, but sometimes these little these little ideas remain in our mind and we see the three wise men, all kings, bowing down and the shepherd standing there and light glowing out of the cradle, and this is our picture of the Lord Jesus. And it's not a scriptural picture, it's not a scriptural picture. In some respects, I think it's satanically inspired. And the reason you'll see is I developed this idea a little bit later on. We rather want to picture Jesus as being born God. He was not born God. He was God from all eternity who was born a man. Now that's an important scriptural concept to understand. The scripture takes time to develop the idea that Jesus emptied himself. In other words, he laid aside his attributes of God when he came down to be born as a man. And the Bible says, he did not take upon himself the nature of angels which he could have. So he would have had a body that was not subject to death in the sense that we have any concept of death at all. There's no way to take a sword and run it through the body of an angel and kill an angel. There's no way to nail an angel to a cross. I mean, he simply can pass through physical things as we know it, move through walls, or there's just no way that an angelic body is bound by the laws of our physical universe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he took not upon himself the nature of angels. Not upon himself. The Bible says elsewhere, the King James says, made himself of no reputation, but the Greek really says, emptied himself, meaning in the uttermost sense. He literally laid aside every attribute of Godhood. He laid aside his omniscience, for instance. He laid aside his ability to know all things that can be known. Things past, things present, and things future. He laid that utterly aside. So when he came down here, the things that he knew, the Bible clearly reveals to us, were shown to him by the Holy Spirit. He didn't know it inherently. He knew it by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now it's important that you grasp this relationship, that what he did and what he knew and what he accomplished was not accomplished as God, but accomplished as a man directed of the Holy Spirit. The part of him that was God is the part of him that purchased for us eternal redemption because of his infinite merit before God. He was God. He is God. He ever will be God. But what he accomplished on the earth, he did as a man directed of the Holy Spirit. So it was very necessary that Jesus be born on this earth just like you and I are born. Not special. Not unique. Not with super power in him that just simply from the very beginning he starts manifesting it. He manifested no power in the beginning. He simply, completely, totally was a baby boy in the arms of his mother. Now, the potential that was in him, like the potential that is in you, is infinite in its variety. In Jesus, the Father had a destiny, something for him to fulfill. And from the very beginning, God began to reveal to him, he was raised in a godly home, his parents laid out to him what they understood of the Old Testament, they didn't have the new, what they understood of the Old Testament, they laid it out to him, they taught him the Scriptures, and God's Spirit moving upon him, he began to respond to the Spirit, began to search out the Scripture, and I don't know where it took place, but somewhere along the way, as he began to read the Scripture, there came upon him a dawning realization, a revelation that some of the things in this book were speaking about him. Now, I don't know how that occurred, whether it was just a little thing at first, and I said, wow, that's, that's vaguely familiar. That's, I don't know why I relate to that so strongly. I don't know if it was that way or it was a sudden revelation. This is me? I don't know. But somewhere along the line, his spirit, his mind, his understanding began to grasp that he was not just the son of Mary and Joseph. I'm sure that they told him the story of how they came together of how the angel appeared to Joseph and how the angel appeared to him. I'm sure they told him that. Maybe that's what got him started searching. He knew there was something unique about himself in that sense. But whatever it was, at some point, he began to know there was a special relationship between himself and his heavenly father. Whether that was a gradual revelation or a burst of understanding, I don't know. But somewhere he began to understand it and began to seek God in a unique way for the direction that his life was to take. God did not reveal to him everything that he had to know about all of his life from the very beginning. The Bible says about Jesus, and here is a very important scripture, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. And I want to emphasize the word learned he obedience. He wasn't just like, well, he's born and suddenly he's perfectly obedient. No. He learned obedience. There is a progression of obedience. It isn't that he was disobedient, but you literally have to learn obedience. It is not a thing that humans just somehow, you just leave a child alone, and somehow it grows up obedient. Obedience must be taught. The child, by a gradual impression by a gradual tightening of direction, by a gradual channeling of the child's abilities, qualities, it must be led to begin moving down a closer and closer channel until finally it's moving toward the destiny for which God created the child. Now, we never know what is my destiny. I didn't know what it was before I was a Christian. I didn't even know what it was when I was a Christian, when I was born again. I knew I was saved now. I'm trying to relate something in myself, and then I'm going to relate it to you. I now knew that this book, there were some things in it. I didn't understand that everything in it was speaking to me. I didn't understand that then. But there were some things in this book now that were speaking to me. And I was not just the son of my earthly mother and father but now I was related to my heavenly Father. See? Now, here I am, a son. Well, my, I'm a son of God. Praise the Lord. Isn't it wonderful? Yes. But the same thing that was true of Jesus is now true of me. God now is speaking to me and saying, All right, son, but though you are my son yet you're going to have to learn obedience. Well, learn obedience? Isn't the Spirit in me? Haven't you filled me with the Spirit? Isn't Jesus live in me? Won't this just be? No. You're going to have to learn obedience. And in my case, it was much more difficult because I had 20 years, almost 21 years, to learn disobedience. To learn how to live as a human without the direction of God. To learn how to live only by the processes of my intellect. And when I became a Christian, it took many, many experiences to give up directing my life by the power of my intellect and learning to direct my life by the principles laid down in God's Word as moving through me by the Holy Spirit. He reveals, and we move in a certain situation. Now, in no sense do we give up the use of our intellect. The intellect is a gift of Almighty God, and it has a vast and needed use in life. And no one should go around because they're a Christian and say, oh, we don't have to think anymore, and we don't have to use it." No, there's a real, genuine place for the use of your mind. For the use of your intellect. But unless that intellect finds its proper perspective, unless it finds its proper place in the scheme of all of God's endowments that you have, unless the Spirit really, through the training of the Holy Spirit, unless your spirit becomes disciplined to take its rightful place of rule in your whole being... The intellect will never find its real expansion. The Christian, in reality, should have the greatest possible right use of his intellect. It should expand greatly under a right perspective and a right relationship of the Holy Spirit operating on the human spirit so that they come into proper perspective. But all that an unsaved person has is his intellect. That's all he has to use. And believe me, that is totally, woefully deficient when it comes to guiding you safely through this life in matters of spiritual things. You simply do not know how to get through life without the direction of God himself. So here we find the Lord Jesus, not unique in the sense of the human body, If you had examined him, if there were some way to examine his body, you would find it was ordinary skin. He had ordinary eyes. They were undoubtedly colored. Some people say they were silver, gray, and others have them pictured different, uh, unique, unusual colors. When he looked at you, it was very penetrating. I don't think his eyes were necessarily any more penetrating than anybody else's. And they could have been blue, or they could have been black, or brown, or green. It wouldn't have mattered. The point is that he took upon himself human nature. Can I imagine as a child he fell down and cut himself and bumped his head and times he cried. Oh, we say, my, I don't think the Lord Jesus ever cried. Well, I think he did. tell so He took upon himself human nature and was made in all points like unto us. who's made like us in every way. See, now if we can put them out of our mind, oh, but Jesus was unique. He was unique in that from all eternity past, he was God. In that sense, he was unique. But when he came to this earth, he put off all of that and took upon himself human nature. Now, there's a very real reason for this. The reason is so that he could relate to you and to me in a very intimate, direct sense. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are. What? Jesus was tempted to steal? Yes, that's right. Jesus was tempted sexually? That's right. Jesus was tempted. Let me give you the scripture. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. But let me explain to you a little bit about temptation and why he didn't begin his ministry until he was about 30 years of age. Now, there's both a Jewish reason for this, but there's also a very natural reason for this. And that same reason is one that you're going to have to put up with. You get saved and you hear about this person going out here and doing a work and this one preaching. You say, oh man, that's what I want to do and why don't they let me do it? I just know if I could go and do this, wow, what I wouldn't be able to do. Well, that's probably just not true. I love my wife and my children very much. Very real love so that I want only the best to come to them at all times. No harm, no danger, nothing of any sort. My heart is committed to them. If someone were to come to me and say, here's a knife, go kill your wife and children, this would not be a temptation. Because there is no responsive cord in me by which that can take hold. Say, I tempted him to kill his wife. Tempted him to kill his children. No. There is no responsive cord in me to make me want to do that at all. There just is nothing there. See? Now, on the other hand, let us say that I was extremely hungry. So much so that the hunger pangs were really tearing at me. I had not eaten for several days. Let's say, and it wasn't a fast that I felt was a proper thing. It's just I was really, really hungry. And I'm walking down the street. I remember out of my childhood, occasionally we would do this, walk by and here'd be baskets of apples sitting down the street and oranges and so forth. And we'd walk by there a little bit close and we'd reach down and just pick up one like this. And then if the guy come out yell at me, man, we just went down the street running as fast. So we'd come back here, you little so-and-so. Then they'd go over and see my mother, you know, and that, that's when it got heavy, I'll tell you that for sure. But in any event, I remember that out of my childhood. So here, I'm really hungry now. I'm in the city. I have no money, no one to turn to, and I go by there, and here's this basket of apples sitting right out there. And the devil says, "Take one, take one. You'll pay them later when you get a job." Yeah, yeah. That's a temptation because there would be a responsive mechanism inside saying you're hungry. You'll pay them later. Go ahead. See, you take a very natural desire, sometimes even a godly desire, and you twist it to make it a bad thing. That's Satan's whole bag of tricks. He constantly is studying you like he studied the Lord. In those three temptations in the New Testament, it tells about the devil... It says how it tempted him. It tempted him first with the food. If you be the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you be the son of God, jump off this temple. If you be the son of God, fall down and worship me, and I will give you all things. See, So there was a responsive chord within him, and he's saying, one, he was hungry. Two, naturally, he wanted to avoid the cross, so jump off the temple. So can you see him? angels he jumps off the temple people are all looking who's that up on the temple he jumps off the temple angels rush under him and bear him up in their hands, and he comes very softly down the ground and lands and said I am the son of God did you see these angels they all fall down and worship him and he doesn't have to go to the cross see a natural desire to avoid pain all of us have that desire a natural desire to avoid suffering. All of us have that desire. No one deliberately goes around, says, here, stick pins in me or, or cut me up or something. No one does that. Here's a natural desire, and Satan takes the natural desire to have pleasure. All of us desire pleasure. We enjoy a good night's sleep. We enjoy a good picnic. We enjoy going out in the country and standing looking at something that God has created. We enjoy beauty. We enjoy, because it gives us pleasure. We avoid pain if we possibly can. God has made us that way. These things in themselves are not wrong. Then Satan takes a very natural thing, and he twists it. And now you've got a responsive cord inside. And it's, yeah, maybe, then you have to say, No. No. And there's suffering that goes on sometimes. Because it's not always that easy. See, here's the thing pulling you, you say, no. But it keeps on saying yes. See, and it pulls and pulls and pulls, and finally saying, God in heaven, help me! Well, until I learned this scripture about Jesus, the devil had me at a real disadvantage. Because I pictured Jesus so perfect from his birth just simply walking through the earth unscathed by the pressures of ordinary mortals untouched by the common problems that made people cry or cry out or weep or beg or plead none of those things ever disturbed him he was totally calm at all times and placid riots, revolutions going on nothing ever disturbed him he simply just walked kind of long like this and I never felt I could really relate to him at all and I couldn't relate to God the Father too well. I cry out, Oh God, help me. But all the time I tell you, I was afraid of my Heavenly Father. Because I had a picture that He was like sitting up there, and I'd always seen pictures of God, just stern, just staring. I picture Him looking right at me. And then there was a song, song we used to sing, All along on the road to the soul's true abode, there's an eye watching you. And I thought, oh, Man, That was a pretty heavy experience, you know Because I had no one to turn to I'd cry out to God, help me And all the time I thought of what he was going to do He might just do away with me some way I remember one night in a church service I was kneeling at the altar praying Tell you how this guilt consciousness can get to you Now even as a Christian You've got to divest yourself of it And let the Lord take your burdens And let the Lord take your sins And trust the Lord to do the work But this guilt thing, when it's in you and on you, can work all kinds of funny things in you. Now, I knew I loved the Lord, and I knew I was serving God, at least in some measure. There were a lot of things in my life that were bad, but I was constantly repenting of those things, because I was afraid the Lord was going to come at any time, and I'd be left behind. And It was a very unsatisfactory experience in the Lord, I'll tell you that, because that guilt and that condemnation was there. And one night, while I was up at the altar praying, a brother got up and said, There's someone in this church possessed of a devil. And you know, I just, I'm down there praying, Lord, I love you and so forth. And the eeriest feeling came over my back. It got cold and shaky. And I just felt the whole church was going to come running over there and start casting devils out of me. And because I didn't know. I didn't know how completely God had done a work. And here I was just all afraid on the inside, see? Couldn't relate to Jesus. So he's too perfect. Well, I want you to know he is perfect. And I want you to know he is God. And only a perfect Savior, such as God the Father sent to us, could have ever done what Jesus did and remained perfect. Jesus so took upon himself our nature that he was able to experience the pain that humanity feels. The tearing on the inside when the devil is really allowed to go to work on you. The crying out of the interior part of our being, sometimes for wrong fulfillment. Who hasn't experienced that? Who hasn't suffered some depredation of the devil when it comes to us we're trying to serve God in the best way we know how and then some terrible suggestion comes to us do this do this do this do this and it's couched in such a way that our intellectual part of our mind almost wants to rationalize it out and say well yeah see that that would be all right because maybe and then you see and it can work it something cries out within us, the Holy Spirit lusting against the flesh and the flesh lusting against the Spirit, then we're in trouble and we need help. Well, how blessed it is to realize that we had a perfect Savior that became perfect, the Bible says, by the things which he suffered. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And when I could take the dirty, filthy thoughts of this world which somehow penetrated my mind, and be able to go to Jesus say, Lord, I used to call this my here's old Jim again prayer, here's old Jim again, Lord. You say, Lord, here I am, and I know I don't have to tell you because I know you know, but I know you want me to tell you, so here goes, Lord, I've been troubled by this thought or this pressure. This temptation, and here it is, Lord, I'd lay it all out there before And the Bible says, Because he was tempted in all points, like as we are, he is able to succor them that are tempted. You know what succor means? S U C C O U R. It means like a mother taking a child in its arms when it's hurt and calming it, you know. Oh. I felt his arms creep around me many times. Which I know. And I'm not going to let you be hurt. You're going to make it. Say, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And we get through it because I can relate to this perfect Savior who was so perfect that he could allow himself to endure, be tempted in all points, all points, like as we are, yet perfect without sin. Isn't that wonderful? We have somebody we can relate to, like we can relate to each other. I don't like people that are too perfect. We used to, in the old days in our church relationships, before I had a broader understanding, I still relate to the church completely, always will, in the sense of like a church, you know, here's a church building and you, that's the church. I don't, you know how I teach on that, that the church building is not the church, the people are the church. And the church building is only a meeting house, a convenient place. You'd still have a church if you met out in the park. You'd have a church if you met in a cave. matter of fact, that's what the early Christians had to do in Rome. They met in the catacombs. They didn't have any church building. The Romans were trying to kill them. And they went back in the catacombs, which were really burial caves. And they went way back in these caves. And they met there with the bones of dead people, dead a 100 years, 500 years. And they had church back there. Because church was God's people meeting together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't think they were under pressure? You don't think they were under temptation? You don't think with those Roman soldiers chasing them and trying to kill them and some of them they did kill and butcher and torment and murder, that they didn't feel that constant just there all the time? Well someone felt it before. The Lord Jesus Christ felt what that means to be rejected and pressured and chased and tormented and hounded. He experienced that. And he was able to succor them. They were going through that at that time. Say, Lord, you went through this. Help me now. And he'd take them in his arms and he'd succor them. So they became calm and say, you'll be okay. I'm with you. See, that's this relationship with the Lord. Now then, we learn an amazing thing, though, about Jesus. And here's the thing what it says about him. It says Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. Well, let's take it from another point of view, what it's talking about God the Father. Jesus was talking to his disciples prior to his going to the cross. And he said to Philip, who was talking to him, said, Philip said to him, show us the Father and that's enough for us. In other words, if we can really see the Father, that would be enough. And Jesus answered in this way, He said, "Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you have not known me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father." Well, I tell you something when that dawned on me, what that scripture, that series of scriptures, meant, that this Jesus could succor me, understood the pressures that I was going through knew how to put his arms around me and calm me, strengthen me, help me, those stern pictures of God the Father started disappearing out of the cobwebs of my mind. And I realized that just what Jesus was doing for me is the same way that God the Father himself was. His very nature, his actions, his purity. Jesus didn't have to come to this earth and take upon himself the nature of human flesh to know what I was going through. He knows. God the Father knows. You know why God partially sent Jesus here? So that I would know he knows, and you would know he knows. We can relate to Jesus who walked in the flesh once we understand what the scripture says about him. Now, it's important to go back to my relationship in the churchy aspects of living. We had to, especially as ministers, which many of you are going out to be, and all of you are in the truest sense of the word, but some of you will actually be ones who stand up in front of people in a a more direct way. You'll be what the world would call preachers of the word, although once again I say you all are, but just from a worldly point of view point of view, maybe even, maybe that's a different way of putting it, I don't know. But in any event, you will stand up and you will minister. Well now, we always had to, as ministers, do what we call set examples for the people. So we always had to act like we were perfect. There was no imperfection in us. We were never troubled as ordinary men are troubled. When trouble came our way, we never felt it. When temptation came our way, we simply said, move away, devil, you don't bug me anymore. See? And just simply walk through life like Jesus did. That same unrealistic idea of Jesus. He just simply floated through life. And riots, revolutions, troubles, death, turmoil, joblessness, Nothing ever disturbed him at all. He said, Jesus, don't you feel? No, I am God in the flesh, and I'm floating through life, and I don't see anything. Can you imagine trying to relate to him? Say, Lord, I've got a problem. Don't bother me with your problem. I'm floating now through heaven. I don't want to be disturbed by you. No, that's not what the Scripture teaches. It says he deliberately came here and took upon himself flesh and blood. Not spirit. Flesh and blood. Blood that could flow out of nail prints. Blood that could flow out of a spear wound. Blood that could flow out of a thorn being pulled into his head, a crown of thorns. That's what he came here to relate to us. Now I say, he didn't have to do that in the sense that he needed to do it to know what we were going through. That wasn't essential. Because God the Father knows what we're going through. But it was essential so that I would know it. Now, here we're trying to get the people to relate to the preacher, but he is totally above them in the sense that he experiences nothing that mere mortals experience. As a matter of fact, he has a room which is 12 by 12 or 12 by 15. It says, Holy of Holies on it. And once he's through preaching, he turns around, opens the door, and goes into the Holy Holy. And where'd he go? He's gone into the Holy Chamber. See. Listen, that kind of experience almost killed me. Here I am tearing up on the inside, temptations drawing at me, pressures upon me, and yet when I come out, I must always... And now, my friends... From this place of great victory in which I live continuously up above ordinary humans, I speak to you." And the people didn't even know what I was talking about, because they weren't there. what place of victory? You know, I'm having trouble, see. And then God, in His divine mercy, let me fall completely, utterly flat on my face where I could not keep up the front any longer. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. Hallelujah. See, I looked back that time I was going through it, I didn't think it was mercy. I thought somehow he'd let me down. No, he hadn't let me down, he was getting ready to pick me up, hallelujah. I was already down, I just didn't know it. Like, and then that miserable experience until I came to the divine revelation that I was never going to put on that kind of a phony front again. I was going to tell people, yes, I'm a minister if that's the way they wanted to get their definition of it. And there's a gift that works in me. I don't know why it works or how it works. I can't explain that. But I want you to know that I go through all of the things that you people go through. I get tempted. I get tormented. I get sad at times and depressed at times and have to take hold of myself the same way you have to take hold of yourself. I have to take myself to Jesus, and I have to tell him that sometimes. I say, Lord, here I am again. <laughs> and I've got to tell you about this today. And you know the beautiful thing? There's never been a time that Jesus ever told me he's too busy with the affairs of the universe to sit down and talk with me. You see, sometimes it may be that you'd like to talk to me personally. And I always, I yearn, I desire, I love that. But it isn't always possible because I am a human. I am a limited individual. And if I'm in L.A., then I can't be here. And if you want to talk to me when I'm in L.A., there's probably no way to do it except maybe by telephone or something like that. But you're never going to find a time when the Lord Jesus is too busy to talk to you. You may have to confess some things that you'd feel uncomfortable telling me about them even though you should never feel that way. Because I tell you, I doubt if there's anything you'll ever have to confess to me that if I told you all the rotten things that have happened to me in my life, you'd realize that I've been there too. And I understand pretty well. Maybe I haven't done exactly what you're going through, but so close in principle that we're on the same ground with each other. And I pray that time never comes that this ministry gets so holy, so conceptually perfect, so doctrinally pure, that we don't have time to sit down and relate to one another just as individuals who at times have some pretty bad times making it through the day. The ability to go to each other at times and say, hey, I've got a problem. Help me. To be able to put your arm around that person, taking on the nature of Jesus Christ, letting that nature express itself and to be able to succor that individual even as Jesus is able to succor all that come unto God by him. That's our ministry. That is the ministry. It isn't just words flowing from a pulpit. It's lives lived on the streets and in the home and the fields, at the job. It's the ability to reach out with the nature of God himself to this world that is twisted and fouled and messed up and express the love that Jesus expressed when he was on the earth 2,000 years ago. But I tell you what the Bible says, it says, as he is, so are we in this world. So we're the expressions of our Lord Jesus Christ right here, and we're to express that love. So now then it gets back to the, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now what God wants is as much as possible in the amount of time you have left to live on this earth. And I don't know how long that is. I don't know how long it will be before the Lord comes for us all, and we'll all be gone. See, some of you, and I think most of you, I think probably the great percentage of you will not live out your natural lives. The Lord is coming. He's coming in our generation. I believe that with all of my heart. But nevertheless, I could be wrong, but in this case, I don't really think so. Too many signs are mounting up that this is the generation. Everywhere we see all of the evidences of this, but nevertheless. I try to keep a somewhat open spirit about that particular situation. If you should live to be 70 years, 60, 50, 40, 30, whatever span of life God will give you, you want to more perfectly express every day the nature and the life and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how will that be done? Well, it will be done in you the same way that it was done in Jesus. You're going to learn obedience, and there's no other way to learn obedience than to learn it. Now, that means today I don't know what the Lord is going to expect to teach me tomorrow. There's something I know today, and let's say that I'm walking in obedience with all that I know. Or maybe almost all I know. I don't know. It would depend on where I am at that particular time. But let's say that I'm walking with all the obedience I know. But there's no place for me to sit down and say, well, that what more can God expect? No, God is moving me to a destiny. There's some point he has out here that he expects me to move in the period of time I have on this earth that I'm going to develop to that point. There's something he wants me to do today that I was not able to do yesterday. There's something that he has for me, James Durkin, let me point it to myself, that I wasn't able to do ten years ago, five years ago, four years ago. Because he has put me through things. He has brought me up with a confrontation to life situation that I've had to face and apply the word or fail and get up and do it again. Because if you fail in any experience, he merely brings you back around in a big circle and pretty soon you come back to the same point again. No way to escape it. You must learn those lessons. And if it takes you ten times of coming back to that same point to learn one lesson, you'll come back to it ten times. You must learn it. Because God is moving you. There's a destiny, and he wants to see it fulfilled in your lifetime and in eternity. And you're moving beautifully toward that. And God, mercifully and wonderfully is intervening in your life, and he brings this into your life, and he brings that into your life, and you come up against this person in this circumstance in this situation, and there's a constant moving of you along life's pathway, and so you as you walk along, God brings you. This person is moving into your pathway. See, you're going along here, you're just serving the Lord the best you know, with all the obedience you have. Let's put it on the best possible way we can. With all the obedience you have, you're walking along, and all the time there's a person moving toward your pathway like this who is going to cause you to have to apply the word in a way that you've never applied it before. You're going to learn a new lesson. And here you're walking along just serving God, and into your life some rain must fall. And here this brother or sister arise, and what have you been doing? You didn't do anything to bring this on. Had you committed a sin? Is there some deep evil in you? You go back over and say, Lord, what have I done? You said, whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That's right. But you don't have to sow evil to reap trouble. Because trouble is a part of God's way of teaching you the valuable lessons of life. Suffering is a part of his way. So you're going along with all the obedience you know, and boom, here you are. And boy, everything, oh Lord, what? Oh God, help, help, help. See? Now, at some point, get calm. And say, okay, Lord. Lord. Now, there's a scripture in your word. See, you've got to fall back on the word. Here's the logic of the word of God. If you have the right premise, your intellect will just do you pretty good. If you have the wrong starting premise, it's going to do you terrible. The starting premise is Paul's scripture. He says, for we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. And I say, wait a minute. Lord, thank you for getting me straightened out here. Now, if this thing has come into my life, and this brother who completely misunderstands me, maybe they don't misunderstand you as much as you think. See, it's just a part of you you don't understand yet, and he understands it pretty well, and you're going to have to get it out where you can take a look at it. And sometimes that's the way it is. I've had to look at myself many times as something I just didn't think was there. And somebody brought it out and said, take a look at that, Jim Durkin. I said, "Why? Well, I didn't even know that was there. Well, you better get rid of it. It stinks pretty bad, see. And uh, yeah, he understood me pretty well. I didn't understand it, see. I wasn't aware of it. Maybe God couldn't allow me to look at it at that point. But you get calm, and you say, Lord, all things work together for good to them, that love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. Now, Father, I know I'm called according to your purpose, so this is good. Now, what's good about it? Teach me the lesson that's to be learned, Father. And I'll tell you something. If you'll take yourself to Jesus, to your blessed Heavenly Father, realizing that you learn obedience by the things which you suffer... And experience is going to come out of that confrontation. An opportunity for you to graciously, in other words, the expression of grace, gloriously the expression of God's glory, victoriously the expression of the victory which is in Christ, respond to that situation. See, you haven't been up against it before. Maybe you're going to blow it the first time. You don't have to, though. Because no temptation will take you, the Bible says, but such as common a man, but God is faithful and will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. But will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it? Now you got trouble. That's a temptation. A temptation to run. Or a temptation to get away from it. Or a temptation to tell the guy off. I tell you something here, fella. I don't have to take that from you and nobody else, and I'm not going to... It's easy. You can do that. Or he can call you a few names. And sometimes that happens between Christian brothers. You're no Christian. I think you're the devil. That happens a lot of times between Christians. I speak to you the truth. See? One denominational group is opposed to another. Here's one over here that believes this particular idea, and here's another group who believes a different idea. You say, wait a minute. Let's not discuss these two ideas. Let's talk about Jesus. Wait a minute, brother. You can't talk about Jesus till you answer me on this point. You say, well, let's talk about Jesus. Don't try to evade the issue. I want to know do you believe this way or you don't. Well, no, this way I believe. And I want you to know you're of the devil. Had a guy tell me that at the ranch one time. As a matter of fact, he turned my body over to the devil, that it would be destroyed so I'd be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, well, don't feel bad. You're about the 50th one that's done that. See, and I'm still trusting it to the Lord. And he's taking care of it all these times. Doctrinal point of view, see? You don't believe like I do, so I'm turning you over to the devil. Now, you have an opportunity either to get up, and you can almost see it, can't you? You turn me over to the devil, have you? Well, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> see? And then you get up, and you turn him over to the devil and all the demons. See? And he gets up and says, I turn you over to fallen angels beside that. See? Isn't that wonderful? See? Isn't that victory? Well, I can tell you, you do that, And I'll guarantee you, you're going to go right around in the circle again, and maybe six months later, six days, six hours, or whatever, you're going to come up against and say, seems like I've been here before. That's right. Until you learn the lesson. So the guy turned you over to the devil. Now, you have an opportunity to get fearful. Oh, don't do this. That's one response. A lot of people do that, see? another response is like I say give him a good blast give him a piece of your mind and uh, tell him off and so forth or you can say to him a proper scriptural response first of all get calm before the Lord and give that brother love but maybe firmness of the word of God or whatever you have to and say brother my trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ and if we be otherwise minded then God will bring us to the same mind also or whatever else you have to say but don't let yourself get shook. You have the power to learn obedience by the things which you suffer. And if you learn that, you've come up against this confrontation. Now remember, God's moving you toward a destiny. You see, he lets you handle on a small scale today what you're going to have to handle on a large scale tomorrow. You mothers and fathers, God gives you a child. You want a ministry of a thousand people. Or you want a ministry of a hundred people. Or you want to preach the gospel to 10,000 people. God says, all right, maybe that's a possibility. I don't know what God's got for you. Maybe he doesn't tell you. But what he does tell you is this. I've given you a child. One child. Or two, or whatever the case is. But not with one. Now, let me see how well you preach the gospel to the one little child I've just given you. Let me see how much you love that child when it cries in the middle of the night, when it dirties its pants right in church right after you've just cleaned it up, when it burps all over you, and you have your nice, you're ready to go to church, and you feed the baby, and the baby will blah like this, see? Oh. Now, what do you do? See? You little rascal! I'll beat you good! Father. Can't do this. I'm not going to church. Ah, 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 ah. (laughs) Can you imagine now having a ministry of a thousand where five hundred are babes and they're all burping? Hallelujah. See? Why you're blown to pieces. You have to get to the place where the baby can burp on you. And you say, Well, I wish he hadn't done that, but after all, it's a part of living, you know. And so we put the baby down, we clean up, and we still go to church, right? You know it isn't. A, ah, ah, ah. See, nothing like that. Now, if you learn the lesson with the one baby, the way this ministry is, I'm sure there'll be another one. <laughs> <laughs> it's also true in the spiritual. If God gives you a ministry of one person or five, and you really learn the lessons of taking care of the five then maybe before too long there'll be 15. And then if you learn the lessons of really taking care of 15, maybe there'll be 50. And then 500, and who knows. Jesus was able to preach to 10,000 people because he learned as a young man growing up How to express the life of God that was in him to one person well. How to relate to his mother and his father. How to relate to his brothers and his sisters. How to relate to his community. Always in a godly way. But he learned and he learned and he learned and he learned and he learned until the time he was about 30 years of age. God sealed him by means of the Holy Spirit and he entered into his ministry. Three and a half years, and he changed the whole world, because he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You today, especially the newer ones, but I said these words would apply to the older ones as well, because I tell you, I'm still learning obedience by the things which I suffered. I haven't learned everything I need to know. Many of times I'm taught the things that I need to know by the youngest babes. By people that are not of my doctrinal persuasion. Quote, quote. By people that really even dislike and sometimes hate me. They teach me valuable lessons I have to know. To know how to keep on loving them when I know they hate me. I know they hate me because they say they hate me. I know they hate me because they act that way. I know they hate me because everything in their power they're trying to destroy. And yet how do you, in the face of being hated, how do you love? That's a pretty important lesson to learn. And if you're ever going to be in a place where God will place into your hands the lives of many people, then you're going to have to learn how to love in every circumstance in all kinds of conditions. You'll learn obedience by the things which you suffer. Now the things you go through at the ranch, things you go through in town, the things you go through on your job, the things you go through in your home. Many of you don't live in one of our facilities. You come to church and you're just a part of the fellowship of the body, but you're learning nevertheless. You're learning on the job, You're learning in your relationships to your neighbors and your friends and the fellowship you have. All of these pressures are constantly pushing on you. Now, if you can get in your mind one real truth, that somewhere out here, God has a revealed destiny for you. I don't know where it is. He may reveal it in a year. He may reveal it in five years. It may take ten years before you really see. You'll have important work all the way along, but here's the real place he's moving you toward. If you really see that, then you will gloriously and completely, trustingly submit yourself to his teaching. He'll train you. He'll work with you. He'll bend you, mold you, push you, and sometimes smash you. Sometimes smash you. He describes that to us as the potter with the clay. He takes the clay and he builds it up into a vase. But I tell you, the potter, he, he runs his hand over it and if he, he feels the slightest imperfection. He knows when it goes into the furnace for the final baking. Because once you bake the clay, it's finished, you can't use it anymore, at least I understand that to be true. Maybe it's a process by which it could be reconverted now, but it used to not be that way for sure. And when you bake it, if there was a flaw in it, the vessel would crack or pop or a little, little stress in it that would break open, and then you could only use the vessel for very low purposes. Because it would get infection in it, or it would leak, or it couldn't hold properly. And so he would feel the vessel very carefully if there was a smallest flaw potter would simply take like this and the whole thing would collapse and many times that's the way it is in our life the potter builds up the here it is and we're even seeing the shape that's taking place in our life and we like what we see in other words God's doing a work and we can see it something's coming out of it that looks pretty good compared to the way we used to live we're witnessing the people they are being saved, or we're beginning to pray where we used to curse and swear. We're beginning to understand the Word and walk in as a joy and a peace in our lives. We think, wow, God's doing a work here in my life. And we see ourselves built up and looking pretty good. But the master potter takes his perfect hands and feels it as it goes around. A little flaw maybe in most of us there's a lot of them he doesn't have to feel that close to find them he just puts them like this then he has to take that all over again and take that vessel and I was looking pretty good there why did God do that see I blew it then he feels through that clay and throws it out throws it out throws it out and then he again he feels and one day He may have had to make that vessel several times, but somewhere along the line, if he's making this perfect vessel, this masterpiece, which every one of you are designed to be a masterpiece, builds it up and he feels and he feels and he feels and inside and outside and not a flaw, not a flaw. Then he says, now it's ready for the final fire, you you turn on that fire, that's right, but you go through it, you don't blow apart, break apart, crack, pop, hold, spring, you know, stand the fire and you come out, and there it is, the colors, you know, you put them on, a woman told me one time about ceramics, like if you want a red, it doesn't look like red when you put it on, it looks a dull, funny looking color, it's the heat of the fire that makes it the beautiful red, The same with other colors. I don't know what they all are, but I know she told me about some of them. And when you put them on, they don't look like that. When you put the glaze on, it doesn't look like that. But all after it's been through the fire, out that vessel comes. You let the furnace finally cool down all through its stages of heat. You open up the door, and the master potter looks at it and says, Look at that. And he reaches in and takes it out. And here are the people standing there looking to see what comes out. And they say, how wonderful! How beautiful! See, that's worth it. Now, that's what God's doing in your life, and you go through these little things. As what Paul called them, he said, "Oh, you don't know, man, how heavy it is!" Boy, someone came along at six thirty in the morning and says, "Get up out of bed!" I never get up out of bed before ten o'clock in the morning. You know, they're heavy. How long they just stand there. See, the Paul said been beat five times with rods, three times received thy stripes, the Jews forty, save one, night and the day in the deep, hungry, cold, naked, thirsty, this, this, this. He names off all these things. He said, ha, he said these light afflictions, which are but for a moment. He said, work in us a far more exceeding weight of eternal glory. Light affliction? Say, Paul, yeah, I know, Paul. I know. You thought about light affliction. I can understand that. You 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 got beat. That's light affliction. I understand that. You were a night and a day in the deep, I understand that. You were hungry and cold and naked. Yeah, I understand that. But I got a heavy problem, Paul. What is it? I had to deliver a tri city advertiser. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> That's fantastic. Huh? Oh man. See? All these things are a part of the training. You know, the happiest experiences that some of our brothers and sisters had, I remember, I think it was one day last year, we'd had a pretty good year, practically no rain, or if we did have rain, it was never on Tri-City Delivery Advertiser Day, and that was just really pretty good, you know. We had rain gear and so forth, but they hardly ever had to wear it, just little light showers or nothing at all. And then one day I was away, and here we had Three days of snow, and the snow stayed on the ground as deep, maybe four or five inches, maybe a little deeper in places, I don't know. And here we just plain didn't have any snow gear. I'll flat out tell you, we didn't have the right kind of shoes for snow, we didn't have any of that stuff at all. And I didn't know what was going to be done. I left it in the hands of the brothers. And you know, we didn't really even have to hardly leave it in the hands of the brothers. The people went out on those two days or three days, whatever it was, praising the Lord. I heard all kinds of reports. When the women would see them coming down, many of them would see them coming down the street, and they were praising the Lord and delivering the advertiser through the snow. And They'd invite him in for coffee and cake and all kinds of things. And I think we had more victory on that terrible day than we've had on many sunny, shiny days. See, how do you meet adversity? How do you meet trouble? How do you meet problems? Do you really see it as your opportunity to grow in Jesus? Do you really see yourself learning obedience? Do you really see yourself moving towards your destiny? Or are you still hung up by the worldly attitude that what life is all about It's supposed to be balmy breezes and sunshiny skies and, and nice temperatures and so forth and swimming by the beach and surfboarding all day long like this. Is that what life is about? Or is it a growing glorious experience where you're getting ready for your real work in God? Now, if you see it the second way, everything in life as a Christian will be a pain in the neck for you. It'll be frustrating, it'll be miserable, you'll hate every minute of your experience. And if you walk away from the work of God or walk away from the Lord, as some people have done in times past, you'll find life will still be miserable for you. But if you turn around like Paul and say, okay, God tells me that I'll learn obedience by the things which I suffer, and it's the only way I'm going to learn it, So I'm going to submit myself to the training of God and I'm going to move toward that destiny that God has given me regardless of what it is. Now, Lord, here I am in your hands. Then a glorious experience will begin to take place. Number one, the minute you really make that decision, you'll feel an immediate sense of some different relationship between you and the Lord. And what it is, is not a closer relationship because you'll never be closer to God than when you are a simple believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to God and say, Lord, I receive Jesus, you're as close then as you'll ever be. You're in the very heart of God, the very bosom of God. Jesus has entered into you. God the Father lives in you. The Holy Spirit is ready to completely fill you with an experience. He lives in you already, but ready to fill you with his perfect presence. You'll never be closer, because by grace you're saved through faith, and that amount of yourselves it is the gift of God. But it's a mature relationship. It's a growing up relationship where you come to see your heavenly father, not just this big daddy who gives you gifts. Daddy, here's your little two-year-old now? Can I have a nickel for a candy bar? Can I have a dime? For See, you increase it all the time. Can I have a dime for two candy bars? Can I have 25 cents for a model airplane? Can I have two dollars for a wagon? Can I have fifty dollars for a bicycle? Can I have five hundred dollars for a car? Can I have five thousand dollars? See, and we just keep increasing our demands on East big daddy, right? We're still looking up there. One point along the way, if you're maturing, you back off And you see your heavenly Father as who and what He really is. Your Father is the relationship. But He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's sovereign, ruler of the whole universe. And His ways are right ways. And you stop looking at Him as just a convenient source of a glorified welfare program. Daddy, gimme, daddy, gimme, daddy, gimme. That's all over. And you begin to say... I want to be like my Father. I want to be like my Savior. I want to do the work that they've been called to do. I want to do the work that's in my Father's heart. I want to do the work that the Lord has destined me for. I want to be like God. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like this book tells me to be. You won't be closer to the Father, but you'll be on a more mature relationship. It'll be then no longer the Father talking to Nice little Jimmy, baby. How you doing now? Well, goo-goo, ga-ga, gee-gee, goo-goo-goo, goo, so forth and so on, see? I said, that's nice, you're really learning to talk, aren't you? Goo-goo, gee-gee, ga-ga-ga, that's nice. Daddy loves you, and then you go off to talk with the more mature. After I get up a little place, I say, Dada, oh, you're learning to talk, very fine, very fine. And pretty soon I learned to talk a little more, and I learned the word gimme, see? Okay. Daddy, give me this. Daddy, give me that. Daddy, give me this. Daddy, get me that. Daddy, 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 daddy. daddy. Okay, he says, no, no, no. Ah, I can't have it so much. Then I get more subtle. I come home. See, I'm in school now. Oh, dad. Yes, son. What is I got to have a pair of flare-bottom check tops, pleated zooma dooms. <laughs> Why do you have to have that? Everybody has them, and I'm the only guy that doesn't, Dad. Can I have that? No. Ah, I don't want to go to school anymore, Dad. I can't stand going. Everybody thinks I'm the square guy, the goof, the how come a think. Pretty soon, one day, you grow up, and you come up against some situation, and suddenly you forget about flare bottoms, zoomadooms, and 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 fancy-looking shirts and sporty cars and, man, if I could have this and that. And you look at a situation and you realize you're dealing with a raw piece of life. Somebody's heart's involved. Somebody's life is involved. Somebody's future is involved. Somebody's in trouble and they're asking you for help. And maybe somewhere if you got... A father who's a wise father. You stand there and look at that and you say, Man, I don't know what to do. wonder what dad would do now. He's able to make the right kind of decisions. Listen. Joe or Bill or Susie or... Let you and I go talk to my dad. He's able to make some pretty good decisions. And then you see your father in a different way. I'm talking about your earthly father. See him in a different way. And the father listens carefully, understands, grasps the situation, maybe speaks some word of wisdom. The person goes out and says, Wow, Mr. So-and-so, thank you. You've helped me. You've really helped me through a hard time. That's all right, so forth and so on. You go out of there and you stand there and you look at your dad and say, Wow, I want to be like dad. Now you're all through with the zoomalooms and the this and that and the other thing. You'll go on buying clothes, you'll buy cars, but those are not the big deals anymore. You want to be like that person. Well, see, sometimes in the world, we don't have wise fathers. Maybe they need to learn things too. We don't always have wise mothers. They need to learn things too, just like I'm a man 48 years old, but I don't know everything there is to know, I'll tell you that by a long shot and some of the things that I did to my kids growing up was absolutely I needed somebody to teach me but there was nobody to teach me nobody maybe I wouldn't have listened if there was somebody I don't know about that either but we've got a heavenly father who's all wise and a savior who's perfect and when we get out of the welfare program relationship to God give me this give me that give me this give me do this for me make me happy keep me oh man I want to be happy Say, God, what I want to be is like you. Now there's a song we sometimes sing, somebody Jesus is happy, and he wants us to be happy too. Well, I don't think he was always happy. I think he was always joyful. I think deep down inside there was always victory, but I don't think there was always happiness. I don't think on the cross when the nails were in his hands and his feet, when he cried out, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," I don't think he was up there happy. See, that's our that's our immature idea of his relationships. I don't think when he overlooked Jerusalem and said, "Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you." As a hen gathereth her chicks, and you would not, and now behold, your city is left under you desolate See. I don't believe when they told him about Lazarus, and the Bible says Jesus wept, that he was happy. But I think when Jesus wept, if you can understand it, the heart of God wept. I think when Jesus cried out because he said to us, the words that I speak, it's not me that speaks them, but the Father that's in me, he does the works. I think when he cried out and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you? I think that was the heart of God, the Father crying out over that city that had rebelled against him. I don't think the Christian life is always a happy life. I think it can always be a victorious life and always a joyful life but not the experience of what the world calls happiness, because that simply means balmy breezes and good scenery and nice food and no hassle. I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The Bible tells us tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. Therefore, let patience have her perfect work. And how do you get that patience? What's the Bible say? Tribulation works patience. But I'll tell you through it all, as you come into that mature relationship with God the Father, there's a sense of destiny that begins to seize your being. A sense of leaving this place and going out into a world that is troubled, a world that is not happy, a world that can never be happy. The world is filled with sin and a world is filled with pain and a world is filled with trouble and they need some good news. And you know what the gospel means? Say it. It means good news. Hallelujah. You've got a chance to go once you've established that mature relationship with the Father, once His nature begins to really flow through you, once He's disciplined you, at least in the basic understandings, Once that really takes place, you have a glorious opportunity to go with the good news. Hallelujah. And our brothers down in L.A. and the ones up in Alaska, different other places, they're going with the good news. And you know, it's something wonderful. The people down in Los Angeles and the people in New York and the people in Anchorage, Alaska and Palmer and different other places are responding to the good news. Hallelujah. Say, tell me more about that. See? So maybe... Like Paul says, he said, as making many rich, yet we ourselves have nothing. I'm going to say this to you. As making many happy, and yet there may be times when you yourself are going through some pretty heavy sweating. But that's all right. Let that discipline work, because the more it works, the more power you're going to have to make more and more people happy. And out of it all will come a deep joy, a deep revelation, a deep insight, a deep knowledge into the heart of God that will be yours. Hallelujah.